Lord, we, we thank you for a chance to gather. We thank you for the gift of communion, the gift of being able to worship you, the gift of being able to give back to the community that enriches us, Lord. And uh, we thank you now for the chance to worship you with our minds and to, to learn more about you. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be here among us, that you would move in all of our hearts, that you would uh, grant clarity to and discernment to the minds of uh, everyone in this congregation, Lord, and that you would speak through me, that you would, um, you would give me the words uh, that need to be said this morning, Lord. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. So, we pick up, we pick up in today's sermon with uh, this, our next chapter in our series entitled Body Building. Um, so, after addressing these controversies and these divisions that have uh, arisen uh, regarding the consumption of meat that had been sacrificed to idols in chapter 8, that was last week's sermon, Paul now moves on to develop further this theme of, of accommodation uh, in the Christian community in chapter 9. And I'm actually very excited, very excited to be speaking on this chapter in particular, because as I was preparing, it struck me that Paul, what Paul's doing here is he's writing about something much broader, much more all-encompassing than these little idiosyncratic issues of idolatry with, and division within the church at Corinth. I'm convinced that what he's doing is outlining in what actually is very, very brilliant theological detail the stages in development of the maturing Christian as he or she confronts the dilemmas of life. So in your bulletins, you'll find that I've broken this up into three distinct sections. That's how it best occurred to me, and I think they capture fairly well these major progressions in Paul's argument uh, that he makes throughout the chapter. So the fourth concluding section uh, is the last few verses, and in my opinion, that's not so much a separate section as it is Paul giving this broader context and kind of spelling out the consequences of sections one through three. That's simply how I've broken it up, but I think it's going to be helpful for us. So as we go through these, my belief is that we will move from comfortable, familiar territory to, towards what is more mysterious to us, uh, the things that we find at the horizons of our Christian experience. And I want all of us to be very mindful of the intentions of our hearts this morning, right now, this moment, as we move through this together. Because what I felt from God this morning is that for many of us in this room, there's going to be a spirit of hesitance that will need to be consciously met head-on in our hearts if the Word of God is going to change something in you this morning. It is never an easy thing to move from what is familiar and readily explained towards the unknown. But my job is not to feed you with a feel-good message. It is to challenge you with truths you'll have to wrestle with in order to make them a part of yourself. You know, I'm reminded of that scene from uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's uh, novel also made into a movie. And if you're familiar, uh, one of the girls, Susan, uh, they're in a fantasy land, so there's talking animals, so they're with these beavers, Beaver family, and um, Susan asks Mr. Beaver about Aslan, who is basically, um, well, he's, he's kind of like Jesus, uh, but he's, he's the uh, king, this uh, beautiful lion who is this king of this world. And uh, Susan is asking about him because these children have found their way into this world. And uh, it's a wonderful dialogue. So um, Mr. Beaver says, well, Aslan is a lion, the lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. 
I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. <laughs> Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. So this morning, let's think of it this way, that spiritually speaking, we are weighing anchor. We are leaving the harbor. We are setting on a course for open seas because that's where God has called us. And in order to get to where we need to be, we've got to be aware. We've got to keep our wits about us. And more likely than not, we'll have to figure out something we didn't already know about ourselves in order to navigate our way home. So, with that being said, we're going to jump into section one. Paul begins chapter nine in the style of a courtroom defense. He immediately starts posing all these rhetorical questions to his Corinthian audience. Because one of the accusations leveled against him by his detractors was that despite his profound involvement in establishing the church and building it up, he was not entitled to receive material compensation for his labors. So he begins, this is chapter 9, verses, we're going to go verses 1 through 7. So Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Because if to others I am not an apostle, then at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So we'll, we'll hold right there for a moment. So this initial appeal, it's, it's very good. It's very, if you ever love debate or watching these arguments, Paul's actually very good at posing these questions and, and bringing out his point through questions and through rhetoric. Uh, his appeal is nested within these questions and it involves several elements. So firstly, he grounds his authority as an apostle in his firsthand experience of the risen Christ. And he reminds the church that its very existence is owed to its ministry. So sort of a don't bite the hand that feeds you kind of thing. Secondly, he offers comparisons with the accepted treatment of other apostles in order to demonstrate this hypocritical double standard in their treatment of him and Barnabas. So he's saying, look at these other guys. Look, you, I'm, we're not asking for special privileges. This is standard treatment for apostles. And thirdly, he provides these common examples from everyday life that support the point that he, as the spiritual leader of that community, had every right to demand a basic provision from them. So he talks about a soldier, he talks about planting a vineyard. If you're a farmer, you're going to eat some of your own crops. Of course, it's natural. But he doesn't stop there. So he goes on to say, this is verses 8 through 10, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. So this is kind of interesting because uh, Paul is appealing now to 
whatever portion of the audience would have been of Jewish descent, he appeals to the law of Moses as an authority. So he's covering all of his bases. But he references this interesting piece of the law from the Old Testament. And uh, it says, don't muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. And that's sensible enough. Uh, if, if an ox is treading out grain and, and you muzzle it, then it can't eat any of what it's treading out that might spill over. Um, and so it's, it's the worst for the ox. But what is interesting about what he says is he says it's not about the ox. And he almost takes it like it's an obvious point. And some of us might think, well, it seems to be only about the ox. It's just about like animal rights or something here, you know? It's like, don't, don't be mean to the poor ox. But uh, something might shed a little bit of light on the context for this. And so, uh, of course, in those days, having a farm animal was a very, very valuable thing, even more so than it is today, because we have machines. Um, and what would have happened in some situations in that culture is that someone who owned an ox would be in a position on occasion to rent that out to someone who did not own an ox so that they could use that for plowing or whatever they needed to on their land. So uh, in the course of renting this animal, though, there are people who would abuse that sort of uh, agreement. They would abuse that contract. So they would not feed the animal very well. They would, not, they would muzzle the ox and they wouldn't even allow it to eat up any of the grain that had spilled over. It was a very selfish kind of motive. And they said, well, it's not my ox. I'm just renting this. So it's a, this guy's problem when he gets it back. So it is about the animal on the service level. But what it is really about is about treating others justly and treating others fairly. If you rent something from somebody, if you rent a car, then it's, well, we have insurance, but you know, it's not a good idea to bring the car back dinged up and beat up and, uh, and all that. So it really is about, at the deeper level, human relations, and it's about justice. It's about respecting that fundamental principle that you owe to somebody else, especially when you've received from them. So I think that it's, very, it's a very neat point that Paul makes uh, in uh, very few words. So he concludes his legal apologetic with a contrast of these kinds of goods that are being exchanged to make use of an economic metaphor. He reminds the Corinthians in uh, what we're about to read that the spiritual benefits far outweigh in quality and in duration the material blessings such as food, housing, and compensation. So that's going to be verses 9 through 14. So Paul continues and says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So, taken as a whole, this section is a powerful, concise, cogent argument in favor of the rights of those who labor for Christ. And so far, I don't imagine that Paul has stepped on too many toes for us. As Americans, in particular, we tend to value and be very conscious of our rights, especially in the context of our Western heritage. And it cannot be understated that the role that rights have played has proven extremely significant in the betterment of society and in cementing, culturally, a deeper sense of the fundamental dignity of the individual. 
But it's for this reason that the following section will probably strike many of us as strange, if not even somewhat offensive, to our sensibilities. So let's continue now, and let's read together verses 15 through 18. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So, in verse 15, we find an admission which, at first glance, almost seems to render pointless the entire first section. I mean, if, the plan, if your plan the whole time was not to take advantage of any of your rights, why spend so much time convincing everyone that you have them? But let's not be mistaken. Paul is not undermining the validity of the case that he spent the first half of chapter 9 making. He didn't argue that he had rights in the capacity of his apostleship only to say, eh, but, you know, I don't, I don't really have them. I don't really have them, so just, just forget everything I just said, and we'll, we're going to start over. It is, in fact, integral to his overall point in the chapter that our Christian rights are indeed ours, an intrinsic part of our dignity, and it is precisely due to that fact that we do something meaningful in not taking advantage of them. Because remember, it's a, it's a, it's a truism. It's, a, it's, it's an obvious statement, but it, it sometimes needs to be said. You can't give what you don't have. All right? You can't give what you don't have. It makes no sense to take pride in giving someone $100 if it was money you owed them all along. I mean, it's the right thing to do. Do it. Give, if you owe somebody $100, give them the money back. But justice obliges you to do that. You're obliged. And Paul is showing us that we are to go further than what justice demands. So this section provides us then with a very sobering lesson. We may feel that we are doing our best as Christians by defending our rights and just sticking to our obligations. And yet for Paul, we get the feeling that such an attitude constitutes little more than the bare minimum of Christian living. It may not be bad, but it certainly isn't something in which we can boast. It isn't something that Paul thinks he feels he can boast in. In fact, he says he would rather die than forego sacrificing his rights. Not that he would rather die rather than sacrifice his rights. He would die rather than forego sacrificing his rights. So what occurs as one moves from standing on their rights to giving them up? What difference does it make? Well, I think we find a clue in something Paul introduced in verse 17. If you want to glance in your Bibles at verse 17 in particular, and that is namely the tremendous impact of our will in transforming the moral character of our acts. And 
really, as I've thought on this more, it is very hard for me to express just how crucial and insightful this point is about our spiritual development. We can consider it like this, that operating on the first level that we talked about in section one, the level of rights, of uh, obligations and duties and justice, that gives you the basic rules, the basic principles by which you determine the proper limits of human behavior. So, don't, it's like in the Ten Commandments, don't kill, don't steal, don't do this. It, it gives us the boundaries in which we as human beings can properly live. Now, my point in bringing this up is that insofar as this first level deals with following the rules and respecting rights, it is concerned primarily with the external portion of our lives. How we act, what we do, what we don't do. But in bringing our will, our free will, into the equation, Paul makes the invisible interior element of our moral lives right to the forefront. He puts that center stage right in the middle of the most important part of what we're doing. Because God is spirit, and we are called to worship Him in spirit and in truth. So for Paul, and for us as a church, it doesn't just matter what you do, or even how you do it, but why you do it, and in what disposition your heart is when you do it. And in fact, I believe it was something like this that uh, Nietzsche had in mind when he wrote that, uh, I believe we have the, the quote up there, uh, he wrote that what is done out of love always takes place beyond good and evil. Yeah, that, that profile pic of Nietzsche is very, very intense. Uh, he, was, he was a very intense man. He wrote that what is done out of love always takes place beyond good and evil. We'll unpack that in a second. Of course, Nietzsche was a staunch atheist. A lot of people throw that out to write him off. But he was no fool. He was no fool. He was more like a tragic genius, actually. I believe we can interpret what he was getting at as something like this. Good and evil represents, for him, the rule-based ethics we were talking about earlier. That which binds you to to do this or to refrain from doing that, often with the implicit threat threat of punishment. But love does not operate merely at the level of what justice forces us to do. It transcends that dimension entirely. So as Paul indicates, it takes us from the level of being considered righteous or justified in God's eyes to the level of meritorious action, of actually earning a reward directly from our Lord. He uses the word reward, and he uses the word boast when he's talking about this second level of action. So, I know we're doing uh, chapter 9 today, but if you recall, and we can jump back very quickly to chapter 3 in Corinthians, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. Uh, I'm not going to reread it for us, but if you want to follow along, this is where Paul is talking about how he set a foundation in the Corinthian church, and he says, that foundation is Christ. And because that foundation is Christ, it's not because of Paul's doing, it's not because of how great he is or how great the Corinthians were. That is a gift, that is grace, and that is freely received. And guess what? That foundation, if it's accepted, is rock solid. Nothing going to move that foundation. But what he says in that section is that you can build on that foundation. He actually says you get to build on it. And he says that you can choose what to build on it, right? He says, some of you are choosing to build on it with wood and hay and stubble, okay? 
And others are choosing to build on it with gold and silver and precious jewels. And then Paul says that when the fire comes, when judgment comes, that the stuff that doesn't withstand that, it's, it's going to get burned away. If you build with the, the cheap stuff, with, with wood and stubble, that's going to get burnt away. He says you'll still be saved, though. And this is the great part. He says you will still be saved, but it'll be like being saved like a trial by fire. So you're going to get singed. And all you're going to have left is the foundation. The foundation is there. It's yours once you take it. But the beauty is that as Christians, we don't have to just sit on the foundation. We get to build. And as Paul's saying here in this chapter, in chapter 9, if you build with the right stuff and you involve your will into it and you say, I'm not just going to do what I have to do, but I'm going to choose to do what I don't have to do, then that's building with the silver and the gold and the precious jewels. And that's something that God is going to to look favorably on. That's the kind of thing where we're starting to talk about reward and merit. So I think it's a beautiful, beautiful picture that Paul gives us earlier in 1 Corinthians that he returns to in this chapter as well. But I wonder now if some of you are as comfortable as you are, or as, as that some of you are as comfortable now as you were when we were just discussing your rights and, the, and your entitlements and not the giving up of them. See, I don't take the proposition that what I will have built on the bedrock of Christ may in the day of our Lord prove to be all so much chaff, just burnt back to his foundation. And I recommend that you don't either. And I hope that Paul has started to offend us, and he is not finished yet. So now we're going to continue, and we're going to read verses 19 through 23, entering into our third section. So Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of, of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. The great British minister, Henry Drummond, once wrote a sermon on love in which he spoke the following. We, he's talking about British people, but we can translate it to our context. In Britain, the Englishman is devoted, and rightly, to his rights. But there comes a time when a man may exercise the even higher right of giving up his rights. Yet Paul does not summon us to give up our rights. Love strikes much deeper. It would have us not seek them at all, ignore them, eliminate the personal element altogether from our calculations. It is not hard to give up your rights. They are often external. The difficult thing is to give up ourselves. So this brings us to the third stage then in Paul's development. We've seen how integral rights are to a moral understanding of human life. Because of this, we see the value in sacrificing these rights for the sake of the gospel. 
And now we come to a further spiritual evolution in which we not only opt not to take advantage of what we're entitled to, but we also extend into the world with dynamism and power, adapting on the go to any and all circumstances to share our faith. Now, I have uh, for you on the next slide a little, for those of you who are visual learners, um, a little kind of summary so far of what we're getting at with these three stages, these three levels of spiritual development. So for stage one, we've talked about rights, we've talked about obligations, that covers justice and these basic moral principles. And again, you can think like the Ten Commandments maybe. In stage two, we've talked about sacrifice, giving those things up, voluntary acts, not what you have to do, but what you choose to do, and that's merit. And I call it the negative face of love, and what I mean is not a bad thing. I mean that it's, it's the stuff you choose to give up, right? I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to take advantage of what I have a right to. I'm entitled to it, but nope, I'm, I'm going to give it up. Stage three now is the positive face of love. It's what I'm, now what I'm going to do when I've realized the power of what love is. So that's dynamism, that's adaptivity, that's progress, and as I call it, the positive face of love. And just reading what Paul says, you can't help but come to the conclusion that he's saying in so many words that there is no place too removed, no culture too foreign, no kind of person too estranged, and no philosophy too different that could keep him from reaching in some way the souls of others with the gospel and the light of Jesus Christ. And he's no naive optimist. Maybe there's some people here uh, that, are, that are cynical, and I understand that. But Paul's no, no, no naive optimist. He's not saying, he's not under these false illusions that, well, if I just do this, then I'm going to get only great results, and it's going to be wonderful, and everything perfect is going to happen. He doesn't think he's going to win everybody. He knows he isn't. But he knows that by going the full measure, he will win some. So at this point, there are probably some of you in the room who are shifting a bit in your seats maybe and thinking to yourself, I don't like this talk of becoming all things to all people. It sounds dangerous. It sounds wishy-washy. I mean, shouldn't we as Christians be standing up clearly for what we think is right and wrong? Aren't we doing a disservice to our faith to pretend like it fits in everywhere? Isn't that diminishing the offense of the gospel? And make no mistake about this, I don't mean to belittle you. I'm not condescending to those of you who think this way. You have a good instinct if you feel a bit of that. I myself think this way sometimes. Your response highlights a real risk in this stage of spiritual development. One I would contrast, or indicate rather, as a contrast between compromise and capitulation. That's just my way of putting it, compromise and capitulation. What I mean by that is, when are we meeting people halfway in a, in a healthy compromise, and when are we giving up our sacred values, capitulating, giving up the actual things that make the Christian a Christian in the first place? It's a very important question. We're definitely taking Paul in the wrong spirit if we say, well, you know, since I suppose all my friends are, you know, getting drunk and stoned on the weekends, I guess I just need to sit down and drink these 10 beers with them because, you know, I, I wouldn't normally, but this is the ministry my, that God has placed me in, and so I guess I just have to do it to become all things to all people. You know, maybe there's some of you who do think that, but I think most of us <laughs> would realize that something has obviously gone wrong when we start to think that way. 
So we can't speak on all the ways to know these, these differences between when you cross that line. That would be a whole sermon to itself, but I, I hope we can provide just a couple thoughts that can help us distinguish properly the ways in which the Christian should approach this freedom to adapt, to become all things. Firstly, I, and I, we should dwell on this, is Paul characterizes this freedom as a kind of servitude. So don't ignore that. He says that right away in the first, chat, first verse of this section. For the most part, what he envisions is not a one-way ticket to Pleasure Island, like in the story of Pinocchio. In fact, later in his ministry, it's actually in the second letter to Corinthians, when he's kind of revisiting more topics and more that he's done, he summarizes his ministry and what it's meant for the world. Now, I don't have this quote. Actually, we're going to get to our quote there in a sec. But I don't have this um, up for you, but I'll go ahead and read it. It's from 2 Corinthians. So Paul's looking back now, and he's summarizing, this is what my freedom to become all things to all people has meant. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spend a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. So talk about that as like a, the advertisement for being a missionary, right? That's like not usually the verse that, that, that we go to, but, it, but it's, it's real. And yet Paul's not, Paul's not bringing that up as like, woe is me, I regret everything I've done. But he's, he's saying this is what it means. This is the price. So by and large, this price of being unconstrained in revealing Christ to the world involves a lot of suffering. Greater joy, no doubt, greater joy, but suffering nonetheless. And this brings to mind a quote which you've seen on the screen now. Um, from uh, This is actually a Christian apologist. His name is Ravi Zacharias, and I had the privilege of studying under Ravi. Uh, he taught us personally at a, few, a few times uh, when I was overseas in Oxford. Uh, he has this wonderful quote where he states, all pleasure is, brought, is bought at the price of pain, but the difference between legitimate and illegitimate pleasure is that with legitimate pleasure, you pay beforehand. With illegitimate pleasure, you pay afterwards. Illegitimate pleasure, you pay afterwards. With legitimate pleasure, you pay beforehand. I think that summarizes very well a principle that we can use to assess how we approach these kind of questions. Is, is what I'm about to do something that is going to give me a lot of pleasure in the moment, but I know it's going to come at a price later? Or is it something that's hard in the moment, but I know there's going to be a reward later? That's a good principle to have in your head as you're considering what does it mean to become all things to all people. So one last question we've not asked ourselves about this section is this, is how is it possible in the first place that we can even engage in this transformative process of manifesting the gospel in the world? Why does it even make sense? I guess that's what I'm getting at. Is, is, why does it even make sense that we can become all things to all people? 
Because the more I've studied history and philosophy, the more I've realized that the fundamental problem confronting humanity is not, why is there so much fighting? Why is there so much disunity and strife and suffering out there? The real problem is, why is there anything else? Why is there order and peace and fulfillment? That's the real mystery, to me at least. Human history is replete with examples of this constant struggle of one faction against the other. We've seen slavery, wars, and all manner of examples of one group seeing less humanity in others than they see in themselves. And what terrifies me is not that these things are irrational, but that they make a perfect kind of sense. There's no shortage of differences between human beings that provides us with these opportunities to elevate one class at the expense of the other. We all differ in mental capacity. We all differ in physical strength. We all differ in how we look. We all differ in our cultural values, etc. But what Jesus Christ revealed to us as Christians, both in his incarnation and in his teaching, was that the restoration, that, that he restored and elevated the original image of God in humanity. And that is something we all share. Oh, you skipped, you skipped to Jordan Peterson too quick. Hurry, Diane, go back. <laughs> no, it's all right, it's all right. Um, he's, he's better looking than me, but um, that's, I just got jealous for a second. Um, <laughs> all right, so the image of God in us is something we all share. So this teaches us two truths, all right? And each of these are one side of the same coin. And this is really deep, okay? This, this, is, this cuts to the core of our existence and what it means to be human being. The first truth is this. We all have a reflection of the divine in us. All of us. Christian, not Christian, doesn't matter. Think of all the categories you can think of. Doesn't matter. And if that is true, how we are to judge, how we are to each other is no longer merely a human matter. It can't be. And it can't be justified in judging others by their natural differences, okay? It's why Jesus, when asked by his disciples, explained to them that whatever you do to the least of these, you do unto me. How we treat each other is a way, and it's perhaps the main way, in which worship of God is conducted in our daily life here on earth. Now the other side of this coin, okay? The darker side is this that but for the image of God in our lives, but for his abounding grace showered upon us, we are all equally liable to become the worst kind of people. It's a sobering thought experiment, but it's one that's well worth conducting in the depths of your own heart to ask yourself, what really separates me from an Adolf Hitler or a Charles Manson? What really separates you? I mean, do you believe that you're just made of better stuff? But they were deranged and brainwashed, you might say. And do you not think, though, that in the course of your own development in life, that you were never open to the same corruptive forces and the same trauma that destroyed the souls of these men? Because remember, even they were children once. So why am I saying all this? Because to get back... Paul in Corinthians 9, 
Once you realize that Christ has rejuvenated the image of God in all mankind and that without his grace, we're all capable of becoming what we find most repulsive and most deplorable, you can never view your fellow human beings in the same way again. Life will never be the same. You simply cannot return to the petty bigotries and these false narratives which exist to keep you from really loving everybody unequivocally in a way that transcends all these traditional barriers that Paul mentions in the chapter. Jew, not Jew, weak, strong, slave, under the law, not under the law. And now, Jordan Peterson, um, this is a clinical psychologist. He's also a professor at the University of Toronto. His name is Jordan Peterson. Some of you may have heard of him. Uh, he's very astute. He's actually spent a good deal of time studying the Bible. Uh, in his new book he recently released, he makes a very profound statement. He says, there is very little difference between the capacity for mayhem and destruction integrated and strength of character. It's one of the most difficult lessons of life. So this has to do with what we said earlier, that when you see and you look down with this unrestrained honesty at the depths to which you could sink, that capacity we all have to become the worst thing that we know, then you stop taking for granted the heights to which God is calling you. And I believe that the church has, despite its failures, historically embodied this principle of becoming all things to all people in love. In its early days, the church set itself apart socially in many ways from the culture at large. A lot of us think of the fact that the Christians didn't worship the gods, and that's of course true, the, the pantheon. But there's more to it than that. It was further set apart in its attitude towards those on the very fringes of society, particularly the very young and the sick and elderly. So some of the earliest actions, this is great because it's all history, you can study this. Some of the earliest actions of the church involved the prohibition of infanticide, which was a practice even in the culture of the Roman Empire, and the creation of the first system of hospitals in the Roman Empire in the West. There were some very minor examples of hospital-like kind of places beforehand. Sometimes they were temples. But the first system of hospitals in history to exist was established by Christians in the West. So for, and the reason I bring this up is because the true Christian, it's a historical example of how the true Christian sees in others the face of God. He sees every potential thing he could be and in so doing, he finds himself. And if you'll allow me one more quote, I know I've, I've packed him in. If you believe it or not, I cut out a lot from this sermon. Uh, it's just really hard. Uh, there's uh, someone among our Russian Orthodox brothers and sisters, he's a recently deceased theologian. Uh, he wrote on the significance of forgiveness and self-identity. And I want us just to keep this in mind of this becoming all things to all people and seeing in others who we could be as part of our own identity. He writes, I have the last half of the quote on the, on the screen, but I'll read the first half. The only way we can find ourselves is to deny ourselves. That is Christ's teaching. If you cling to yourself, you lose yourself. The unwillingness to forgive is the ultimate act of not wanting to let yourself go. You want to defend yourself, assert yourself, protect yourself. There is a consistent line through the gospel. If you want to be the first, you must will to be the last. There is no self there to be defended except the one that comes into existence by the act of love and self-emptying. 
It's only by loving the other that myself actually emerges. Forgiveness is at the heart of that. The church fathers all say, your brother is your life. I have no self in myself except the one that is fulfilled by loving the other. The Trinitarian character of God is a metaphysical absolute here, so to speak. God's own self is another, his son. The same thing happens on the human level. So the minute I don't feel deeply that my real self is the other, then I'll have no reason to forgive anyone. The act of forgiveness is the very act by which our humanity is constituted. Deny that, and we kill ourselves. It's a metaphysical suicide. Now, that has some theological language and jargon, but I think the real core point is this, is that God himself is a trinity, right? Three persons in one essence. So God has relationality built into his very essence. We are the image of God. We have that built into our very essence. So if you're over here saying, I'm entitled to my opinion, and I have my rights, and I, and I have my individuality, and I have myself, and I, 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 if that's all you're ever saying and all you're ever talking about, you're killing yourself, spiritually speaking, because it's not who you are. You find yourself in the face of another person. You find yourself in forgiving them and loving them. So to bring this all to a close, uh, let's quickly read verses, nine, uh, sorry, verses 24 through 27. Paul brings it home. He says, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, my translation translates it as, I, I keep my body under control. In the Greek, it actually says, I pummel my body and I make it a slave. You might say, maybe to translate it to some modern language, you might say, literally speaking, I beat the hell out of my body. All right, spiritually, <laughs> I beat the hell out of it. As Christians, I think, many of us embrace a profound theological mistake. We do well to place emphasis on the tremendous miracle that's achieved for us at the cross, the atonement, the remission of sins, the justification in the eyes of the Father. But I fear that many of us, and it's out of maybe a misplaced zeal, dedicate so much energy towards this foundational point that we forget that being forgiven and reconciled with God is not the end point of Christian life, but it's beginning. It's the soil out of which the rich fruit of Christian living is yet to be born, and I cannot dwell enough on the gravity of this. By acting as if the moment of deciding to be made right with God is the apex of the Christian experience, we doom ourselves to raising up a generation of perpetually immature Christians, ill-equipped for the battles to come, unhardened for the storms of life, forever stuck in first gear, repeating those same spiritual exercises from which we should have moved on a long time ago. Things like just, oh, don't lie, don't steal, make sure you donate your 10% towards charity, treat others fairly, I got the list, and I'm done. And I wonder, do any of you Feel that at all in your life? 
Maybe for years now, you felt incomplete and dissatisfied. Maybe you feel like even you know, though you know the rules of Christianity, you're not playing the game very well. Maybe you don't feel the dynamism and flexibility that allows you to become all things to all people, that frees you from a shackling insistence on your own rights. It doesn't mean you aren't a Christian, but it does mean that you haven't gone as far as God wants you to go. Jesus didn't come so that we could be content. He came to make us kings and queens and fighters and overcomers. He came to make us by grace what he is by nature. We are the face of God in the world. So let's start acting like it. Heavenly Father God, we thank you for everything you've done for us and everything you continue to do. We pray, Lord, that we, like Paul said, would keep our eyes on the prize, that we would see life as a fight and as a struggle, and that we would see this as our shot, the chance that you've given us through the foundation of your son, Jesus Christ, to really make something of ourselves and to make something of the world, Lord. The kingdom is among us, as you said. We're the vessels by which you're bringing your kingdom into the world, God. Let's see ourselves that way. Let's not get bogged down and caught up by the rules and by just the rights and by the obligations, Lord. Let's see what love really is and let's become all things to all people in our lives, starting today. Amen.